Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. you pull out your Bibles, if you have them, or your devices, whatever you use to access the scriptures this morning, I have a message preached to you today that I am so excited about. In fact, it's the start of a new series. The title of our series is Why? 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 Um... I'm beginning this series, and the purpose of it is to take a look for the month of September at, uh, just take an intentional look at what we believe and why we believe it. I think that it's very, very important for each one of us to know what we believe. We live in a society of people that are not sure what they believe. And if we're going to minister to them, if we're going to see people's lives transformed, we need to know what we believe. And you know what? We need to know why we believe it. Amen? That's really true. It's very important. So we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come. I'd like for you to, to before I jump into it, can we make our, our confession that we like to make, our faith declaration this morning that we love to make on Sundays? You can see it on the screen if you're following us online. You can see it on your screen as well. Let's just declare this out loud together. Say it. Thank you, Father, that today the eyes of my heart see you, the ears of my heart hear you, My heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your will. Today, I am growing in the things of God. We believe that you're growing this morning in the things of God. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're going to read... Verse 28 and 29. I'm going to read it to you first in the, New King, in the New King James Version, and then after that I'll read it to you in the Living Bible. John chapter 6, verse 28. In the New King James it says, Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now in the Living Bible it reads, They replied, What should we do to satisfy God? Jesus told them, This is the will of God that you believe in the one he has sent. This is the will of God that you believe in the one he has sent. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you today, Lord, that the Bible declares the entrance of your word gives light. God, I thank you that as we peer into your scripture this morning, as we look into the word that we will be beholding the light of the truth of your word. And Father, as we do that, we pray that your word would go into the places in our hearts that need adjustment, that need correction, 
that need uh, a soothing, that need healing, Father, that your word would go to work on the inside of our hearts, bringing light into the darkest places, bringing clarity into confusion, answers to questions, deliverance where deliverance is needed, healing, Father God. Would you grow us and change us, transform us, stretch us, and rearrange us this morning as we go into your word together? Give you praise for this and thanksgiving in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. We are in the midst of a cultural change. We are in the midst of a cultural change. Cycling in and out of our nation's history over the past hundred years, but especially intensifying during this past decade, our nation has been in the throes of what culturally some would see as progress while others would see it as upheaval. How many of you have felt that? Anybody? Yeah. Society as we know it is in the midst of cultural change, but this type of culture and this type of change is nothing new. In fact, our nation has witnessed this type of reform before, I want to invite you to think back as far as you can go. Everybody goes a little bit different based on when you were born, but think back as far as you can. And remember what it was like to grow up in a nation and in a society and in a culture that maybe looks a little bit different than what it looks like now. The Roaring Twenties. How many of you were around for the Roaring Twenties? Probably not. The Roaring Twenties, for example, was where our nation's wealth more than doubled in a single decade on the heels of the first Industrial Revolution. What happened there was, it's easy to see, a frenzy of carnality, consumerism, excess, and a steep decline in morality. And it swallowed an entire generation. Ultimately came crashing down on them in 1929 when the stock market just imploded and led us into what we know as the Great Depression. That cycle of moral decline was not just isolated in that generation. As a matter of fact, it showed up again in the generation of those folks' grandkids. This cycle continued in the 1960s, and this time it was fueled by a wave of psychedelic drugs and an outcry against the cultural issues of the day, things like the Vietnam War and overwhelming racism and racial inequality. Anything in that time that was institutional in nature came under severe attack. And even though a lot of racial equality, and if I'm honest, some of the very best music ever, came out of that era, the casualties of the 1960s and early 70s were significant. Those casualties were godliness and even common morality, which were at that time presented as antiquated dogmas best avoided, replaced by things like free love, open sexuality, and infatuation with a godless pursuit of the divine. People began to look for divinity in other places. This began a transition away from an era where the population sought to explain their lives by what they were associated with. 
The author Charles Taylor calls it the age of association. Think back, if you're, if you're in my generation, I'm right in between Gen X and millennials. I'm an I'm a elder millennial, what it's referred to, if you wanted to know. But think back, if you're an elder millennial like me, think back to where your grandparents were. They were a part of the age of association. They explained their lives by that which they were associated with. Churches, rotary clubs, garden clubs, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, labor unions. The list goes on and on and on and on. Lives were, were, were drawn to the ability to associate with something bigger than themselves. This was part of that culture and that generation. In the 1960s, in particular, this gave way to the era that the author Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity. So, so your grandparents, if you're my age, were part of that age of association. Their kids, the baby boomers, my parents, were, were, were transitioning into a new age that the author Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity. On the surface, sounds good. When you start to dig into it, it's not quite as good as it sounds. The focus, according to Taylor, of the age of authenticity is primarily on discovering and expressing one's true self. Again, sounds okay on the surface, but it's, it's really tough to do when Jesus calls you to lay your life down. Really tough. According to Taylor, in the age of authenticity, institutions are seen suspiciously as confining at best in one's personal journey of self-discovery and oppressive at worst. Now, it seems to me what I'm describing to you is a cycle that happens generationally, meaning once every 50, 55, 60 years or so, one generation rebels hard against God, calamity happens, they repent, their kids, they raise up another generation who seeks to carry on in strength and moral fortitude, only to then raise a following generation who plunges back into moral decay. You, are you guys familiar with this statement? I've heard this in the past few years, and I think it's really good. Tough times create strong men. Strong men create easy times. Easy times create weak men. Weak men create tough times. And round and round and round we go. Very interesting when you look at it. It's super accurate. You can go back in, in generational chunks over the last 200 years in our culture and watch this cycle play over and over and over and over and over again. So we find ourselves back in a similar situation. The flappers from the roaring 20s were, of course, the grandparents to the baby boomers whose grandchildren now occupy dormitories all around our nation's many and diverse college campuses. The wheel has made a full turn. The cycle has come back around. And here we are wrestling with how to reach a new generation plagued by old demons. How do we preach to those with whom we seem to have absolutely nothing in common. I went to a football game yesterday at Appalachian State's campus. And as is our custom in our home, we tailgated. Because that's what you do if you were born in Boone, you tailgate. In fact, the tailgate is probably more important than the game, if we're honest. Really and truly it is, okay? Okay. 
So there we are eating fried chicken. And I'm just looking around, and I think to myself, as I do often when I'm on campus, I'm like, man, I don't, how do I relate to these folks? I want to so badly, but I feel as different as I do to the dinosaurs. Just, I just don't have anything in common, it seems. How do, I, how do I preach to that generation? How do I posture myself as a leader in God's church to train up and to equip others to reach a generation that they may or may not have anything in common with? How do we learn to answer their cultural objections? Do you know that when you preach the gospel to people, you get objections? If you don't, Shame on you. Go preach the gospel and figure out what it's like. You need to. We all need to be sharing the good news. Can you say amen? But how, how do we answer their objections? Because the objections are different now. They're different than what they were 20 years ago. I, I can remember when I was in uh, our youth group, when I was growing up in, in Sarasota, Florida, and one of the things we would do was take tracts and Bibles and, and things and go, pl- and go hand them out to people either at the mall or at the big movie theater. And I can remember being out there in front of the movie theater. Really, I really wanted to go and see the movies, but I was like, no, I'm here to minister to people. So there we are handing out tracts, right? And I can remember the objections. I might say to someone 20 years ago, you know what, God is so good. And he has an awesome plan for you. Back then, the objection would be, why is it that you call God good? I don't think God's very good. Today, the objection would be, why is it that you called God he? It's a different world. It's a different era. The culture in our country is becoming increasingly secular. You've witnessed this. What this means is that we can't rely on the idea that an understanding of God is the baseline and foundation in Western society anymore. We cannot rely upon that anymore. People, perhaps, were not raised with the same faith foundation that previous generations were. And and, and the thing is, previous generations were able to rely on that undergirding tone of morality and Christianity way more and we just can't do we can't do that anymore the assumptions are different the baseline's different I watched a I watched a uh, a clip the other day of Billy Graham on the Johnny Carson on Johnny Carson late night and uh, it was from like sometime in the 70s and I love it because I'm just such a nostalgic person I love stuff from previous generations So I'm watching this, and they got those. Y'all remember the big collars of the 70s? And and it was like, it was just the era of shag carpet and paisley ties, and just, I love every ounce of it. But I'm there watching, and here's Billy Graham with his big, giant paisley tie, and there's Johnny Carson in in his sport coat that looked more like a rug than a coat, and he's sitting there, and he's interviewing Dr. Graham, and, and Graham's just preaching the gospel to him. He's just straight up preaching the gospel on national television. And he's saying this, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to repent of your sins. Here's the thing. Billy Graham never had to explain what the word repent meant. And he didn't have to explain what the word sin meant. The culture understood it. Today, that is not the case. I can remember when I came to an understanding that the people around me, certain family members, cousins, uh, certain friends of mine that I maybe went to school with, 
that they didn't have much, if any, working understanding of who God is. I can remember one of my one of my girl cousins was having a conversation with my younger sister. And I say one of my girl cousins because my dad, my dad has eight brothers and sisters, so me and my sister have 27 first cousins. And so you gotta delineate these things. But so she was talking with one of my girl cousins, and, and my cousin said to Laura, How long are you gonna do this Christian thing anyway? I remember realizing that to the world, the Christian thing is just a thing. It's my whole life, it's my everything, it's my eternity, but to them it didn't seem to mean a whole lot. In fact, I'll I'll go as far as to say this, the generation today many times only possesses just enough understanding of Christianity to be able to mock it. People today, I'm going somewhere with this by the way, people today especially in the younger years, don't see Christianity as the answer. Best case scenario, they see the church as irrelevant. Worst case scenario, they see it as a problem which society needs to be freed from. If you didn't grow up in the church, that might be the way that you used to think until you met Jesus. Many of us, this is a stern warning, but it's reality. Many of us have been pacified by only ever relating to a compliant culture. Very few of us have ever thought about having to combat the spirit of this age when we minister to the people around us. But we must because lives are at stake. Eternity is real. We have to become motivated by a heart for the lost. Become the fishers of men that Jesus called us to be. Now, with the start of a new school year upon us, there's another shift. I've been talking about generational shifts and cycles. There's another shift going on right now. And if you have kids, this shift involves you. And that's the shift from the beach and the lake and the summer lazy season to Now we're back to the rhythm and to the routine. We have returned to the routine in the last two weeks. How many of you are like, yes, yes, we are getting up early again. Fighting all the way to school. Someone didn't miss a shoe. This one dropped their toast face down in the grass on the way out. It's it's just, oh, we're back to school. Many of us have said goodbye to the lake and hello to sweaters and pumpkin spice lattes and homework and all that all that good stuff that comes with fall, you know, praise God. Listen, I've been thinking because this is happening in, in our world, as we come back to the rhythm and the schedule that we will spend the majority of our year involved in, it's a time for recalibration and for adjustments. It's a time for recalibration and adjustments. I wrote this down. Whatever we commit to now is setting the tone for the majority of our year. Even if you don't have kids that are in school, it's just the calendar changes and the school year's back and it's going to be holidays soon and it's, there's all kinds of stuff. That's not an excuse to listen to Christmas music, by the way. Uh, that's not an excuse. Give it some time. Give Thanksgiving its due, okay? The reality is whatever we commit to now is setting the tone for the majority of the year and my heart is being so, so compelled to lead us 
into examining the foundations of our own faith and letting that set the tone for our year. More than that, the Spirit of God is compelling me to equip you, the church, to intercede for a generation that is ignorantly and desperately running away from the God that they most need. This, this cultural shift is real, man. And, and here's the reality. We are, we are not going to win this generation the way we won the last three. We need to be like the men in King David's army called the sons of Issachar. How many of you are familiar with the sons of Issachar? First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, talks about the sons of Issachar. And it said they had understanding of their times and they knew what Israel should do. We cannot go in the same method we used to go. Vanessa Hensley and I, who's our kids director and oversees outreach at the church, were talking the other day with a young man who is doing ministry on App State's campus. We had the most amazing, amazing conversation, and I loved hearing this young man's sense of urgency. Urgency to reach the lost on App's campus. I was so impressed with what he had to say. And he, one of the things he said was, he's like, you know, it, it's, if you want to reach college kids, it's not about, like, you try to get them to come to your thing. You got to go where they are. I said, yeah, that's good. So how do we make the gospel real to someone who, who may or may not have any frame of reference for the scriptures we believe in? How do we adjust not what we're saying, but how we're saying it? We don't tweak the message gospel doesn't change. It's relevant for every generation. How do we serve it up to a generation that doesn't have the, pre, the same preconceived notions that our grandparents' generation did? I believe there's two big answers to that question. Firstly, you demonstrate it. You demonstrate it. Let people see your faith in action. Pull, pull people into your life, into Christian community. Let them watch and see that you're not a wacko and they'll actually start to believe the things you say. That's not what this series is about, by the way. It was just kind of an aside. St. Francis of Assisi is, is attributed as saying these words, and I love it. He said, preach the gospel always, use words when necessary. You see, there's, 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 a, there's something to be said for us creating community amongst ourselves so that we can invite people into that community and they can be touched by God as a result. That's the first way that I believe we answer this question of how do we, how do we minister to people. The second is to understand what you believe and to understand why you believe it. That's what we're focusing on in this series, Okay. When polled, 22% of Christians said fear keeps them from sharing their faith. 22%. It's over two out of 10 people. 10% of those people say they don't feel equipped to share their faith. They feel that they lack the tools necessary to preach to people. When I was in Bible college, the dean of our school, who also happens to be a very close family friend, Dr. Phil D'Amico, by the way, you'll meet him because he and his family are coming here for the 10-year anniversary celebration, so sign up, okay? Dr. Phil D'Amico often told us this, it's not just important to know what you believe, you must be convinced of why you believe it. Hence the title of our sermon series, Why. Now, as we jump into this, 
allow me to give two disclaimers. Disclaimer number one, I am not struggling to figure out what I believe. And I want to say that very intentionally because these days it seems like pastors come out and they say, we're going to have a series where we re-examine our faith. And then six weeks later, six months later, everybody's, you know, he's the, the mayor of Harrisville. I'm not in that situation, okay? I'm not here to re-examine what I believe and deconstruct my faith in front of you. Rather, I want to bring us through an exercise to say, what is it that we believe? We're not here to figure out why it's wrong. We're here to examine it so that we can together learn why it's right. There are five things that I believe this generation and culture need. And in the course of these next weeks, we're going to touch at least all five of these from several different angles. Five things that I think our generation absolutely needs, and you need to know what you believe about each one of these five things. Number one, the study of the Bible. That's bibliology. Why is the Bible the thing? Why is that important? Why is the Bible true? Why can we believe it? Why? 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 be asking a lot of whys this month. Number two is the study of God, theology. Why God? Why should we believe in a higher power? Who is that higher power? Why is he the guy and not the other guy the guy? Follow me? Hey, listen, people out there are asking themselves these questions day and night on their way to hell. If we don't have a good answer for them, what are we doing? Number three, Christology. It's the story of Jesus, the study, rather, of Jesus. Why Jesus? Why is Jesus so important? See, it's easy for me to tell you that Jesus is the most important figure in history. and You go, amen. What if I say that to someone that didn't grow up in church? Will they agree? And if they won't, what am I going to say then? Number four, pneumatology. This is probably the only one we won't touch real hard. And the reason is we just spent four weeks and I preached to you a series about the Holy Spirit and power from above. So if you missed that, go back and watch it because it was really good. The fifth one is ecclesiology, which is a study of the church and its mission. It's real hard to invite someone to church if you're not even sure why you go. It's even harder to invite someone to church if you're not sure if you're going to go this weekend or not. Not wrong. <laughs> We've got to know why we believe what we believe. So, in the few moments that we have left today, got about 12 or 13 minutes. That's what the timer says. I am holding the microphone, though, so I could go for as long as I want. Lock the doors, gentlemen. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Now, number one why question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you at least one, sometimes two why questions for the next five Sundays. This is the first why question, and this is the one that just grips my heart. Why belief? Why belief? Why should we believe anything. 
You say, I thought we were talking about Jesus and God in the Bible. We are in a couple weeks, but we got to start way, 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 way back here where the rest of the culture is. We got to answer some, some fundamental basic questions and get on the same page so that when we introduce the Bible, we've created a little foundation for people to stand on. Does that make sense? This world is what, is what theologians define as postmodern. In fact, they might call it post-postmodern at this point. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But why belief? Number one, why belief? Why should we believe anything at all? Because belief is a nearly constant, automated function of our heart and soul as human beings. Belief is not a social construct. It is a process that is, is as innate and natural to you and I as our breath or our heartbeat. Why believe? Because you're going to believe something. This is something that we as human beings, we just do. We just believe. We believe things. All belief is the natural result of the cognitive process. It's not a construct that somebody, listen, your mom and dad never taught you how to believe. and They never taught you that you had to. What they taught you is what shaped what you believe. But the action, it's like flexing a muscle. Nobody, nobody has to teach you how to tighten a muscle. You just do it. It's part, of, it's part of your cognitive build as a human being. And belief is no different. Belief is the end result, the net result of the cognitive process. You see something and you immediately begin to believe something about what it is that you're seeing. The ability to form beliefs is common to everyone. We all have that ability and we are all exercising it all the time. May I prove it to you? Okay, Claire, you will please put up the slide on the screen. I have a, I'm going to show you a slide on the screen. I want you to observe this slide. There's a lot going on. Now I'm going to ask you a question about this slide, and I'm going to tell you right when I ask you this question, I'm going to tell you right up front, this is not a trick question. What color is the slide? Okay, if you said red, you're correct. Now, as you answer that question, what I want you to think about is the fact that you believe you know the color. You arrived at an answer that you believe to be correct based on what you saw. You saw something, immediately it formed a belief in your mind. Now, thankfully, it's not a very important belief, right? The color of a slide really is not going to make a whole lot of difference in your life. But the point is, immediately upon seeing it, your natural instinctive reflex was to create a belief about what you see. Y'all following me so far? This is precisely what I mean when I say that belief is fundamental and it's, it's, it's a fundamental part of who God has created us to be. You can put the red slide down now, Claire. You see, the, the postmodern mindset or the post-postmodern mindset that we live in that dominates many people today, even the intelligent ones, which is all of you guys, would have us assume that there's no reason to believe anything. In fact, that's one of the overarching themes in postmodernism 
is that nothing has any meaning or any relevancy to it at all. Question reality. You ever see that bumper sticker before? You can't question reality. You're in it. You can't question it. People would have us to, people would have us to believe that we shouldn't believe anything. And, and here's how you can help someone that says that. If somebody ever tells you, why, you know, you shouldn't believe anything, just ask them why they believe that they shouldn't believe anything. Apologists call it a self-defeating argument. Let me tell you, let me give you this to you in a story. Uh, there's a, there was an, a Christian apologist who's no longer alive who was giving a lecture on a college campus, and I don't know the exact location of the campus, but, but he was in the midst of talking about Jesus and, and preaching and, and, and giving a lecture on the validity of Christ. And in the midst of that, a young man steps up and interrupts his lecture, and he shouts out, everything is meaningless. This apologist was giving, the direction of his talk was, was aimed at helping people understand that because God is who he is, the world around us can have meaning. There's, this is more than just a, a collection of time plus matter plus chance. So this young man stands up and says, everything is meaningless. And the apologist stops in his lecture and takes a moment to address this young man. He says, young man, he said, you can't possibly believe that. He gets offended and goes, yes, sir, I can. How, how dare you tell me what I can and cannot believe? He said, no, no, young man, I'm trying to help you. You don't understand what I'm you can't possibly believe that. He got even more angry. He said, I can believe whatever I want. He said, you cannot believe that everything is meaningless. Because if everything is meaningless, then the statement, everything is meaningless, has no meaning. You see, the world lives in a construct trying to strip us of anything absolute. And to believe in anything absolute is to be bigoted or to be ridiculous or to be, at, at, at the very least, an ignorant person. But the reality is the world has meaning because God designed it to have meaning. And God created within each and every one of us the innate ability to believe. The question we're answering today is why belief? Why believe in anything? Three big reasons. Number one, because you and I are constantly collecting and categorizing and compounding information into our belief system. Theologians call it our worldview. Our worldview is our complete set of beliefs on how we see the world. Our worldview is constantly being shaped and changed as we grow and as we interact with the world around us. Why is belief important? Why should we believe anything? Because we're constantly believing things. Number two, because our belief determines how we live. Your belief this morning determines exactly how you're going to live. Our beliefs become the basis for our lives. So before we even get to why is Jesus God? Why is the Bible reliable? Before we get to any of that, we got to ask ourselves the question, why should we even believe in anything anyways? 
Because our lives are directly impacted by what we believe. We've been given the capacity by God to believe and to subsequently live by what we believe. Reason number three why belief is important is because you can believe, therefore you must believe. Your ability to believe indicates, watch this now, your ability to believe indicates a responsibility to believe. Guess what? Your dog can't believe, but you can, and so you must. Old Fido, he just lives by instinct. He does, he, God, God didn't give him a spirit like he gave you that can rationalize and believe. Jesus said, with the heart man believes. You can believe and therefore you must. And it is for this reason, please hear me, this fundamental ability given to us by God that when they ask him in John chapter 6, how do we satisfy God? Jesus' response is, this is the will of God that you believe in the one that he sent. This fundamental ability that's given to us alone as human beings by God to be able to have the capacity to believe that very thing Jesus said, this is the will of God. It's as if he's saying, God placed within us this ability to believe and the purpose for it is so that our believing always leads us back to him. God placed within your heart this divinely inspired capacity to believe so that when you see Jesus, the innate reaction begins. Your belief gets provoked just like God designed it to. And it's like a homing beacon. Your heart begins to lean back toward the one who created it and put that belief there in the first place. This is the will of God that you believe in him that he sent. It has been said that there is a God-shaped hole in every person's heart. I am inclined to believe, I'm of the persuasion that belief itself is the God-shaped hole that is in every person's heart. You are born with the capacity to believe him and his will is that you do. Now, one final thought on why belief. If we're going to believe, then what we believe needs to be true. Belief, by its nature, demands truth. Presence belief requires that what we believe be that which is true. In order to give belief any kind of meaning, then what we're believing needs to be correct, accurate, and true. When Pontius Pilate stood before Jesus just hours before his death, he looked at Jesus. It's interesting that when you read it in scripture, you get the idea that Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate. 
I'm of the belief that Pontius Pilate was standing before Jesus. He looks at Jesus hours before he died. He asks the question, what is You see, if we're going to believe anything, then what we believe needs to be the truth. Belief demands truth. Pontius Pilate asked the question, what is truth? We're asking ourselves the question, what is truth? You want to know what truth is? Come back next week. Let's stand up to our feet. Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.